There is a cloud over the morning sun. My arrow falls from the air. It will not find the buffalo's heart. It will not sing in its flight. I am like a child this day, without strength. My arrow falls from the air. There is a cloud over the morning sun. And it got so bad that winters, real, real bad, and they didn't have much food, they didn't have much shoes, they didn't have much blankets, so when anybody did die, then, um, then the ground was frozen so hard you couldn't bear them, so they would climb and put them in the fork of the tree and remove the clothing so those that walking could wear. One lady told me, she said, I'd like to go to Washington, D.C., and I'm going one of these days, and so sure enough, she got a chance to go. When she come back, she was the old lady. She's about 70 years old when she, when she made that trip. I said, well, did you go to Washington? I said, what did you do? She said, I went to see Andrew Jackson's grave. I said, what did you do? She said, I spit on it. To me, it was the ultimate insult. There were a number of treaties that were made and a number of, of good, goods exchanged. One thing, uh, they were always promised money. They had no concept of money, you know. To me, it was the ultimate insult. On this warm day, this day of 23 miles, which began this morning at 8 o'clock in Winona, began in the freshness and vigour and the joy of a new day. Everyone anxious to be at the front, and it's late in the evening now, and everyone's anxious to be in. It has been one of these days I remember going back two weeks, going back since we left Broken Bow in Oklahoma, one of these warm, wide-skied, blue-eyed days of America and Mississippi. A day, I suppose, when one thinks of the Choctaw looking at this terrain, this now well-tailored terrain, one remembers that they were from here, that they farmed in this place. We've had one, one element with us which will remain in my mind forever from our trail of tears. This is the sun, because from around 10 o'clock until late evening, the sun comes up and it stays above you. It's like a giant, white, hot ball beaming down on you. And one thinks, I suppose, of the winter of their discontent as they came through here. They had no sun to trouble them. They just had the wind, the rain, and the snow in the 1830s, the driving, sleeting snow, and the Union forces urging them on. We are, you could say, going home, going home for the Choctaws. The Choctaws who left this place and who gave to us years later we are giving them back a little and now I can see the green sign with the white facings because this is Choctaw country I think it's important for us to realise that we've come through a vast country very luscious country but in fact the Choctaws have been so constricted now into a very small little reservation with only 5,000 people. Into Little Rock I was looking at their map 
and you can see the whole eastern uh, southeast is very luscious and green and then across on the west of the Mississippi you're beginning to get into the plains so really they were they were sent to a desert in a sense and you can imagine how the ones in Oklahoma felt terribly bewildered and I think when you view their trail of tears and their suffering um, it makes their generosity to the Irish during the Great Famine all the more remarkable. In fact, Richard and I, as we're walking along, sometimes we're thinking of our own families and our own children and thinking that, you know, as we were doing this, if we had our children and say, if our little daughter died, like, you just have to bury her there and keep going, you know, or maybe if your wife died, you had to bury her and keep going. And half the Choctaw Nation who made their way to Oklahoma had that very sad and horrific experience. To bring it back to ourselves, to hell or to comet is not so far away from you. No, and the reality is the Mississippi River was, in a sense, beyond the pale. And uh, that's why the Choctaw and the Cherokee, the Chickasaw Creek and Seminole Indians were forced there to, to put them along with the other savages to leave this open for so-called civilization. But the, uh, the real civilized people were those who had humanity and as the Choctaw uh, showed to us and we're learning now as we go towards the end of the 20th century and towards and into the 21st century that you know the reverence that the Native American Indians had for the earth and for nature, uh, they were generations ahead of, of the white man and we're only beginning to catch up on them now. This is French camp. It's 10.25 in a lovely sunny morning and I'm in a lovely idyllic place. It's French camp. It's a historical museum, I suppose you could say, a living museum as we're in the midst of all the lovely trees in their autumn foliage here. What is your name, by the My way? My name is Jack Johnson and I'm kind of in charge of this area down here for the school, for French Camp Academy. Now, we're on the Choctaw Trail, as you know, and this has particular significance for Choctaw people, what you have here. That's correct. Uh, this Frenchman's camp was started by a Frenchman from Canada, Louis Lafleur, who moved from Canada with the Evangeline group and came down to uh, Mobile on the coast. He there married a Choctaw Indian girl and who was the niece of Pushmataha, who was a big chief with the Choctaw Indians. And when they, uh, when they commissioned the road, the post road to be opened, the Natchez Trace, uh, in the early 1800s, the Army came in and cut a trail from Nashville to Natchez for communications because they had just, they had opened, they wanted to open the Louisiana Purchase up, you know, because they had bought this territory. And uh, the Army came in and then made this trail, and so it became the overland route from Nashville to the south, to Natchez and to New Orleans. This was before steamboats, so it was a, it was a shanks mare and horseback sort of thing. This would have been important to Choctaws, all this area. Right, and uh, this was the Choctaw Territory, and so Louis Lafleur, being married to a Choctaw Indian girl, first moved to the bluffs in Jackson, Mississippi, and had a stand there, and a the stand was like a tavern, an overnight rest stop on the trace, where they were stationed about a day's travel apart. And so then, shortly thereafter, he moved up here to French camp. Tell us a bit about Greenwood himself. Well, Greenwood himself uh, was 12 years old when his father and, and mother moved up to this territory here at French Camp. Uh, shortly thereafter, he, uh, he met a Major Donnelly who had the mail contract running from Nashville to Natchez. 
And uh, this Major Donnelly uh, took a shine to Greenwood and wanted to uh, educate him and move him up to Nashville where he had more proper schooling. This was really the frontier in those days. And so uh, that occurred. Uh, years later, Greenwood married Major Donnelly's daughter. And that was the wife you see in this picture over here. He was the one, or, or she and he, were the two that traveled in this carriage that we see here to visit Washington and Andrew Jackson. We're talking of Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., right. That's correct. They made two trips in, uh, in their treaty negotiations with the Indian Affairs at that time. See, she, um, Greenwood, uh, as the Choctaw say, was the last chief of the Choctaw Nation east of the Mississippi River. How far again would they have traveled to Washington, D.C.? Well, Washington, D.C. from here, and at particularly at that time, was probably about 1,500 miles. If one can ever use the word ordinary about anyone, Greenwood was not ordinary. No, he was not ordinary, that's for sure. He was extraordinary. <laughs> would he be well-liked in Choctaw folklore? Possibly not, uh, and, and, and that's a good point, but I think... Uh, because he negotiated that treaty that uh, moved the Choctaws out of their ancestral lands, that was probably be the reason that he is not a very popular sort of a fella. The Trail of Tears must have had a profound effect on the Choctaws themselves. I'm sure that was true. Uh, I think a lot of them looked at it as an opportunity, but uh, I don't think it materialized like they had anticipated. I don't think it came to fruition as the way it was put to them in any way, shape, or form. Meeting the Choctaws in Oklahoma, I got an impression of a great dislike for Andrew Jackson. Very possible. His, he had the Indian solution, you know, which was to move all the tribes to the Oklahoma territories. Of course, then when, when Oklahoma proved to be a, uh, a money box, you know, they, they, they moved him out of there too. So, I tell you what, it, it was uh, an injustice all the way around, seems like. What effects do you think does it have on people being on a reservation? What is the atmosphere of a reservation? Uh, that I, I've only been on a couple of them, and it's um, it's not uh, uh, an uplifting experience. It's nighttime by the lake of the pines, and the first Choctaw person we met in Mississippi is with me here. What is your name? Athelis Lewis. How many Choctaw people live around these parts? Oh, 5,000 Choctaws on a reservation. 5,000 is a small number. It is a small number. We're a small group of Choctaw. Why are you so small, if one could ask you that? <laughs> uh, I think it's the, the uh, talking about the Trail of Tears, and this is where it happened in with, I was told that the, like 120,000 Choctaw would once live here in Mississippi, but then uh, there's a time that they need to have no choice to move on to the Oklahoma, and then this is where the, a lot of people has a lot of deaths because of the starvation and disease and all that. And this, uh, the group that here is that the people that has hidden in the thicket area and, uh, and then way deep in the forest and all, all that, and we are descended from that, so therefore we up to 5,000 now. It seems to me, talking to you and listening to you tonight, that it's a very painful memory. It, it is. Uh, it is uh, very painful that what has been done to us, and uh, and it just, uh, it's, it's just too hard to talk about. And even this day, I still see in what was done and what it was like. When you were a young girl, 
would your parents or your grandparents have talked about the Trail of Tears? An idea I know of because of the uh, what I know now that it's painful to talk about. So probably that's the reason why they, they never really talked about it at all. And another reason is that uh, during my time that I have to live on a sharecropper and we have to work from sunup to sundown. And by the time end of the day we were tired as soon as we ate and we had to go to sleep so we can be ready to go up and. I'll do our share again the next day, and then they never let let us have a have a time off or nothing like that. So we always in the field, uh, even on Saturday. The only time that we have a little break was on Sunday. What do you mean by sharecropping? Sharecropping is the uh, you live on the land of the white person, uh, and then you do work for them and uh, 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 do all the uh, like uh, land. Uh, work on the fields for them and uh, planting and then uh, work on it and when the time comes up to uh, for like uh, if you do cotton and uh, if you do come up with like uh, six bales of cotton they get three and you get three and uh, but still yeah they had to, you you use your three to pay the debt that you own through the year and a lot of time we never get get out of the debt, so therefore we had to live on that, on on this um, uh, farm and work for another year. Would they allow you to speak Choctaw in school? When I was in the school, the school was operated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and they didn't allow us to speak Choctaw. So it was very hard because uh, when the teacher tell you something and you don't understand, and uh, you try to ask, the, hopefully this other student would know what they say. But again, they, you've been punished by you know, speaking Choctaw to another student. Living in a reservation, what is it like? Living in a reservation is uh, much better than, uh, than off the reservation because you are freer or you're more relaxed, re relaxed in the reservation to do things that you uh, want to do. Whereas off the reservation, you're kind of uncomfortable to do things, but on the reservation, you know that's your home and you know you can do things that you would like to do so it's you're free on a reservation to do what you feel free to do in the 50s and the 60s you'll remember well the sting of discrimination and in 50s and 60s it was very painful for me because it was very hard uh, during that time that the we can't even go to the uh, restaurant through the front door we had to use the back door along with the, the, the black people or uh, drinking uh, water fountain was separated for for white and for the uh, the blacks and the Chantal and then also uh, like stores that you go and buy stuff the salesperson had to follow you around it just make you uncomfortable and did the police harass you too police is uh, also uh, if you be caught in the in town or out of the reservation, it's still it's still there. The, our charter people are treated, uh, but it's not the bad it's used to. But you know, for us as the black people, you know, I I do have a good relationship with them, and I probably would trust more of those black people than uh, than the other people that that I have worked with. It must be sad for you as a Choctaw to look at all this land in Mississippi and know that it was all yours once. It really is because uh, one time it was uh, belonged to Choctaws and then white settlers came in and then uh, 
uh, give a lot of foul waters to our Chata people, and then and when we lose our lands and all that. Many lies were told to the Choctaw people. Yes, many, a lot of lies has been been told to to the Choctaw people, which that we believe, uh, they believed. Maybe that's the reason why we don't really uh, trust uh, the non-Choctaws now, because of, because of that experience that we have heard and we have seen. The moon is full behind bare trees. I sit here before my lodge with a stone in my heart. My children race among the trees. They gather pieces of the broken moon for tomorrow's journey. I will go with my people to a strange place. My woman is buried at the place of soldiers. What's happening here now? And the first dance that they're doing is Okfuchush Hitlop, the duck dance. Uh, and most of these dances uh, tell us something about the animal and the way that it moves. Uh, so the duck is being simulated here? Some, somehow. How important were dances to the tribes? Well, they were, they were quite important. They could use them in preparation for going into battle, for example, or just as social dances. And what we see among the Choctaws today are the social type dances. Uh, those that are made famous in film and uh, are those of the, of the Plains dancers, the, the war dancers, the war dancers. they call them. The new year was celebrated by the, uh, by the new corn celebration, which is what's being interpreted here. That meant life would go on another year. The very first little corn was in the shucks, and you could peel it back, and you could say, we're going to live again. We're going to live another winter. So that's what's being celebrated here. It's just like New Year's Day, when it was July. Do the Choctaws in Mississippi find it difficult to keep their culture alive? Uh, no. They, they were losing it in the late 40s. But as economic development came, it brought them money to buy these beautiful dresses and have somebody make them. And, and they didn't have that. You'd see a few people in the Choctaw dresses. But now the new industries have promoted these kind of gatherings. Our birth rate was 100 in the uh, 60s. It's up to 300 new Choctaw kids a year. The language was down to 1,200 speakers in 1910. There are 6,000 Choctaw speakers in 1992. How much is known in Mississippi of the Trail of Tears? It doesn't... Um, affect the Mississippi Choctaws that way um, very much. They, they know about it and we have it in our histories. And, uh, but you see, those people that left, uh, these made the decision to stay home and protect the bones of their fathers. And one of the uh, Choctaws that Coney had, uh, when I saw him, he said, are those chickens here again? I said, what do you mean? 
the Oklahomans were coming, Choctaws were coming to visit, said, oh, they chickened out and left, you know. <laughs> they couldn't take it. These people chose to stay, and they re-acculturated at that point. The bulk of the tribe had, was moving fast toward acculturation in the main culture. And as you probably know, in, in Oklahoma, they don't many speak Choctaw anymore, but here they do. They became, they reified their culture and stayed here and preserved their ball games, their dances, their language, and uh, fought a long and dark, uh, deprived of their land, sharecroppers on once were their empire, and now they're coming back, you know, on their terms. We're by a lake side, a lake associated, as many of the lakes have been with the Choctaws, and this is the Lake of Pines. Sister Rebecca is with me here. You've come a long way to join us on this Trail of Tears. From where did you come? From Brazil, from the north of Brazil, the mouth of the Amazon River. We are, as I've said, been doing the Trail of Tears, walking mile after mile in this molten sun. It's a common practice among many Indian nations here in the US to take long walks or runs in which they commune with nature, um, find a vision, find themselves, and uh, give expression to their religious beliefs. Is this often a solo effort? Sometimes it's solo, especially if it's a vision quest. Otherwise it can be a community walk in which the, um, there's a blessing ritual every day, um, blessing ceremony. During the walk there's pretty much silences, that, there's co communion with nature, and in the evenings around the campfire the old tell stories to the young so it's a way of passing on heritage that's why it's then community sometimes stories are important to the indian peoples exactly like they pass on the traditions and they tell things that have happened in the past and things that are happening today because telling the story isn't just relating facts it's giving an interpretation and analysis as you go along so the stories change constantly if we can cast our mind back to the Choctaws trails of trails of tears in the 1830s, mm. they would have told stories, I suppose, to propel them on their way at night if they felt like it. I am sure, I am sure. And uh, although it was a very suffering trail, it didn't have the same qualities as a sacred walk would have. It was a forced walk and they were hungry and cold and dying. Um, but I'm sure they must have had many prayer services and um, many prayers and blessings and stories, yes, to give themselves courage to keep on. They seem very much at one with the world around them. I find that common to all the Indian nations I know, um, a real harmony, a living with, communion with all of nature and all of mankind. I think that's why the violence of the white man was so shocking to them, because it was beyond their understanding to treat another living being in that way. Something which seems impossible to us, they had no concept of ownership, had they, of property. Precisely. They say, the Brazilian Indians always say, the earth owns us, the mother earth owns us, we do not own her. And you cannot possibly, like um, Chief Cecil said here in the United States years ago, how can you own or buy or sell the air you breathe? Your, your mother, the, the earth, your sister, the tree, you know. Even the Indians where I work have 300 years of um, living in a rather civilized way, by white civilization, <laughs> living the way this white civilization lives. Um, even they will say when they go to cut a tree down, they'll talk to it for a half hour and explain to it, I really need this because I'm going to make a canoe and I'm sorry I have to do this. And they will not just walk up and cut a tree down. So that's why when 
loggers and lumber companies go in. Um, it's, it's shocking, it's terrifying, it's horrible. Along the Trail of Tears we came across many, many ant hills and feared them and maybe disliked them, but the Indians have a different approach to the ants. Yes, uh, where I live, the ants, those little red ants, are very much appreciated because they put air into the earth. And so much so that when the Indians dance, they paint their faces all red to imitate the little red ant. And the other cutting ant that comes into the fields, when they come in to cut the, the crop, um, the way the Indians where I live take care of that is they follow the trail of the ants. They leave a very visible trail as the, the leaves, there's a trail of cut leaves. And they follow it to the nest and then talk to them. And they say, um, would you please let us harvest first? And after we've harvested, there'll be enough for you. And then the ants don't come back anymore. How would the Indian mind react to us? I'm not sure how the Choctaw would, but uh, my sense is that there, there would be some degree of indifference, perhaps a wariness um, that the white man is trying to appropriate something that is truly theirs. This Trail of Tears is theirs. It's their lived experience and history. And maybe they don't understand why white people from even a foreign land uh, would come come in and, and maybe they're afraid that something of it will be taken away from them by this maybe I'm not sure in some ways we are interlopers here yes yes we're walking on sacred ground and we must be very reverent and not have high expectations snow is melting and the ground is hard. The tears of my people run with the melting snow and the rivers run with the tears of the earth, with the tears of the earth and of my people. The brown earth is packed with blood. When the earth melts, there will be blood in the rivers. Tears of the earth, tears of my people. Father Pat, we're standing here looking at a very, very nice, comforting scene. People queuing for lunch, and it's a nice tree-lined place, the pine as usual. What effect has this place on you? Uh, well, I think it, I'm in state of shock, really, Donovan. I was expecting more life, I was expecting more, uh, you know, some kind of movement. And, and when I heard the drum, I was kind of disappointed. I, I wondered if this was the drum of the old Choctaw or was it some sort of a weak expression almost of uh, uh, fear of being Choctaw now. I'm, I'm a little shocked really. You had expected a different Choctaw to what we have found? Uh, no, no, my expectations weren't great to be honest with you. Maybe because of my experience in Brazil. Uh, you know, where the Indians have a much greater consciousness of their identity. Because I think the fact of your, uh, your own history, if you, if you haven't got a critical view of your own history, I think your, your identity is in jeopardy, really. Certainly any, any festering from the past is kept well away. Kept well away, yeah. And uh, then the, the next question is, uh, what is progress? If you have no identity, how, how can you define progress? I mean, we are surrounded by a lot of science progress here, but I would have a lot of questions, really, as to what that actually means in terms of incorporating their identity. You along, mean along progress in spirit, as well as 
yeah. technological. Absolutely, because uh, technological progress without the spirit is, is a real disaster. And, uh, you know, one would hopefully be able to integrate the two. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with technology as mm. such, or the material world either, but uh, if you can't integrate it with the spirit, then I think you're, you're in deep trouble. Do you get a feeling of being defeated among the Choctaws? Yeah, there is a sense of defeat in spite of all this, uh, the, all the trappings of uh, modernity. A sense of defeat. I mean, I was just talking here with our Indians from Brazil and they were also manifesting a state of shock and how in a village in, uh, in their part of the world we would not be standing out here on the fringe. We would be part of the centre and that, uh, this, that they are actually in a state of shock over this. Walter, have you enjoyed it as an experience? Uh, enjoyed, I don't think it's the first word would come to mind. But I'd put it another way, I'd say I won't forget it. It's a difficult survival for them in this country, isn't it? It is, it is. There's, I honestly think there's no way that the culture they have... I would even say it hasn't survived. I mean, it's not a matter of it won't survive, but I don't think it has. I think it's gone, except for their language. It's an incredible situation for a country of this size, though, to have that sin almost in its soul, so to speak, what they've done to the Indians. Yes, uh, even yet there's plenty of land to go around, and why they had to be so mean about it at the time, when at the time they did it, there was literally half the country empty. There was no excuse for it. It really was a crime. I mean, you'd have to say it was a deliberate crime. We want this bit of land, so you get out of it. And when they got them into another, they yeah. wanted more and yeah. more and more. And the Choctaws show the signs of it, don't they, themselves? They do. There, there are signs of a, what would I put it? I wouldn't say a beaten paper, maybe that's overstating it, but there's a bit of that. But uh, certainly they appear to have lost that freedom which they must have had if they had nothing else they had that. And freedom of spirit. Yeah, they go together. And there's no hope for them? I'd love to say I think there is, and I have to say I think there's not. In many ways, we didn't bring them much, did we? Not a lot. I, I don't know. I think after this year in particular, when Columbus was taking such a hammering, I think the Spanish treated them better than the Anglo-Saxon people, because They've almost been wiped out wherever the Anglo-Saxon people were. And one of the main problems in, in South America is that they are in the majority. So they weren't, they weren't wiped off their lands or wiped out. And, and indeed our own people, you take uh, the non-lamented <laughs> Andrew Jackson and uh, our friend General Sheridan from Killing Care and Cabin, yeah, yeah. they don't emerge unscathed from criticism. No, indeed, and you'll hear of them you know, in further afield than in Mississippi, down around Louisiana and Florida and around there. They're not highly spoken of This is Journey's End. This is Neniwaya, and it's been a long road from Broken Bow in Oklahoma to here. And we're standing on the sacred mound, the sacred mound of the Choctaws. Wanda, you walked with me towards the end. Do you get feelings here? 
I think just about every Choctaw who comes here gets a feeling of some sort and just remembering how it used to be and when you hear elders talking about the origination stories and things like that, I think any Choctaw relates to the area when we come here. What do they say about the origination? Uh, okay, there are stories. One that I'm familiar with is that there were two brothers <laughs> who camped here. One brother, they stuck a pole up the next morning and one brother was gonna stay and the other brother was gonna go in the direction that the pole fell and the Choctaws stayed and the brother went on and the brother was another tribe. And that was one of the origination stories. So in a sense, when the Choctaws left Mississippi, they were torn from the heart of this place. Right, right. And I guess that's why we're here. Many of our elders chose to not go even during the removal era and were remnants of that. Because of this place? Right, because of the home place. This was home. They did not want to go. Do you often come to this place here? I very, I guess, several times a year I come by. Why would you come by? I guess it's, I guess I come back like a lot of other people. It's a sacred place. And although we don't have a lot of spiritual ceremonies here, like I'm sure that they did in the past, it's just something that you relate to when you talk about, when you think about your past and your history. There's like a that. sadness too about this place. It doesn't belong to the Choctaw. No, it does not. And I think I have heard stories of traditional Choctaws, how they used to walk and run for miles. I have heard stories of traditional people running from here nonstop to Atlanta years, generations and generations ago. So I think, uh, I guess, all of us enjoy walking. The walking and the yes. running is tied in with your spirituality. Yes, yes, and it's almost like when you've walked long enough, you feel a oneness with nature. I don't know if you sense that in your journey from Oklahoma, but I, I get that when I've walked a long ways, just a oneness with nature. There's a strange, strange feeling of oneness among all the peoples here. Father Pat Clark, do you get any sort of spiritual aspects or waves from this place here? I do indeed. Like you were saying yourself about the mounds, the ancient mounds in Ireland, they fill the place, the landscape with energy, spiritual energy that you can feel as you stand there or look, or look on. And that oneness that I talked about, do you feel that here? Yeah, it breaks through. It's as if... Uh, you know, all our prejudices fall down and uh, we begin to see that in the end we're all one, really, if we could only live that a bit more than we seem to do. Rebecca, we're standing here in Naniwaya. What do you feel here? Great sacredness, a reverence. It's a place where people were born, people are buried. It's a symbol of the people's tie to the earth. It's night time now in Choctaw County by Lake Chiacata, an Indian lake, of course, a Choctaw lake, the lake of the pines. And in fact, standing here in the darkness, the luminous darkness, we can see these selfsame trees mirrored in the water. It's a peaceful place. And up above us is the high, wide, beautiful and dark silken sky of Mississippi, a sky full of stars, stars glittering and in fact reflected here in the waters below us and up there through the tall trees, the very tall pine trees, there's a small, small crescent moon. It's a peaceful place, a place to reflect and to reflect on the Choctaw Trail of Tears because 
when they went away and when they tell us about the elders clutching at the trees and kissing the stones and looking into the lakes and seeing their reflections, this would have been one of the places they bade farewell to. Listening quietly, the still small sounds, the music of humanity, as Wordsworth said. Listening to it here and thinking of Choctaws who might have come down here on a night to dream and Choctaws like the other Indian tribes, they dreamt and they had their visions and this might be a place, a place to sit and look, look up there at the, at the glittering stars. The glittering stars in a dark velvet night in Mississippi and where they might have come and thought about their past and where the dreams of the future would have come to them but never the sort of future they thought of. The savagery of the removal, the removal all the way up to Oklahoma and I suppose what we have here is a microcosmic view of the Indian view. Everything part, a sort of, if you like, divine pantheism. Everything part of everything else. The stones, the rocks, the trees, the leaves, the birds, the animals, the skies, the great massive skies up there, the stars glittering, and the moon behind us, all part of the Indian. And I wonder how they felt as they lay down in this place, this place for the last night before they left. But nights have been horrid here and horrible near this lake. Nights full of screams, the silent screams of a nation torn away from its land and driven ruthlessly into a wilderness. This is a place of peace. It's also a place of screams. And a night crowned above by the Milky Way Milky Way beaming down into this dark lake, this lake of pines. It's a night full of peace, but it's also, if you think of it, and if you listen to it, a night full of screams. is singing on the great plains listen can you hear it singing on the great plains the grass that feeds the buffalo the grass sings for happiness in the warm wind my horse throws his nostrils wide with pleasure my woman and children will grow strong this year the spirit grass is singing on the great plains association with AFRI that was a vision quest introduced by Donica O'Dooling and compiled and produced by Colin Morrison.